You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, September 9th, 2015, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santamaria. Well, hello. And Evan Bernstein. <laughs> uh, yes, this is my real voice this week. <laughs> Evan. This is not some synthesized thing going through a mixing board. This is me. Evan has conference cred from Dragon Con. Oh. <laughs> Nerd I plague. Nerd plague. That's my favorite one, Kara. <laughs> we have a lot to talk about, actually, just in the opening banter of the show before we get to uh, our regular segments. You may have noticed that Jay is not with us this week, and that is because mm. at this very moment, Jay's wife, Courtney, is in labor. Last we heard, she was seven centimeters dilated. I thought Monday was labor day. Yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> and and when I told Steve seven centimeters, his quote was, that kid's going to be out before we're done recording the show. <laughs> we'll see. Jay's going to text us updates. If there's any updates before we're done recording the show, we'll let you know. But obviously, JJ is uh, engaged at the moment. Couldn't be He's on the He's got to get his priorities straight. All right. <laughs> I guess he gets a pass this week. So offended. Bob and Evan, you were both at Dragon Con. You were sort of soloing this uh-huh. this year because Jay obviously couldn't be there. And uh, we didn't make it an SGU event. But how was it? It was great. Fantastic. The As usual, the costumes were just mind-blowing. Uh-huh. I took a billion pictures that I'm going to turn into a slideshow and, and probably post on Facebook. The talent, just every year, it just reinvigorates me, and it's give, it's motivated me to uh, to finish my costume for Halloween. And it, it, <laughs> it's a, just movie-quality stuff. It's like, how the hell did you do that? Just fantastic, fantastic. Plus, uh, Evan and I, uh, we didn't have any SGU uh, uh, shows to do, so we each grabbed a panel or so. I did, I did two panels, one on time travel and one on cryonics. They both went very, very well, especially the time travel one. Steve, I was also at Dragon Con, as you mentioned. Uh, and I actually gave a talk, first solo talk of my career, mm. which, uh, I think went over very well. Uh, it was about uh, skepticism in the martial arts, which is something I have talked about before. Uh, but I kind of, what I, what I've done is taken all the pieces over the years that I've talked about it and turned it into one talk. Um, and I also tied it in with uh, safety at conventions, oh, you know, cool. what people can do to kind of better protect themselves and what to be aware of. Situational awareness is a lot of what martial arts is about in practicality. So I applied all that. It went over very well. Awesome. I dig that. Did you break any boards? Oh, gosh. The bricks no. or your head, nothing like that? <laughs> no, no, no demonstrations. Didn't chop but, your arm in I, half to, with the cheese? <laughs> I, I did show a couple of those uh, videos, <laughs> though, for uh, people who didn't have the uh, privilege of seeing them before, in which, yes, martial artists claim to be able to, say, turn their skin to stone and then take a machete and hack at it, and guess what happens? She yeah. failure. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. So people were, you know, horrified and amazed that, that things like that really actually do happen in real life, not just in movies. Wow. So, so Evan, how come you sound like James Earl Jones and Bob sounds totally normal? <laughs> <laughs> I'm immune to conference that. crud. Yeah, you're lucky. <laughs> so the show comes out on September 12th, one day after September 11th, the 14th anniversary of 9-11. 14 years. 14 years. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Gosh. Uh, what's more amazing, though, is that the whole conspiracy thing is still chugging along. It seems like uh-huh. whenever anyone gets shot, you know, in in a, 
a public way, you know, it becomes a news story, the conspiracy theorists find some reason to claim that it is that it's fake. That's a false flag operation. Just try to take your guns away. So <laughs> you guys saw the video of the uh, the local newscaster getting shot live on TV, right? Yes. Yeah. Oh, horrible. What's, horrible. Oh, what's yeah. going on oh with that? Gosh. So they're claiming nice. that it's fake. What? Okay. Yeah, so some conspiracy uh-huh. theorist uh, posted a YouTube video claim showing the um, the newscast, and then you know the shooter had a camera on them. You know they yes. had a cell phone first camera. person shooter, mm-hmm. basically camera for themselves, and uh, he compared the two and said, "Look, there are differences. Therefore, there were two separate takes." Therefore, it was faked. The whole thing was faked. But the differences can be explained entirely by the fact that the the newscast video was high frame rate and high quality. And the GoPro, whatever the guy was using, was a very low frame rate. So you can't see certain details you know, from his camera. Uh. At one point, she nods her head, and you, you can't really see that in his video. All you could really see is a it just... Her head gets blurry, but you can't see that she's nodding. You know what I mean? But it's getting mm-hmm. blurry because she's moving, and the frame rate is so crappy on that camera. So, I mean, that's it. I mean, that's so they're anomaly hunting. They're just not, and the anomalies yeah. aren't even that interesting. But they're like railing about this, like this is case closed. You've got to be an idiot if you can't see that this is fake. Uh, it's just incredible. I'm going to be talking a little and bit it, more about this later too on my segment about why people behave this way but good i'm so glad because like the only thing i can think is what is the motivation yeah and like i can't think of something more distasteful yeah than than piling on after a tragedy exactly the yeah. worst was the after the newtown shooting yeah. yes oh my yes God. yes exactly correct but, but steve i'll say i did notice something that just caused me to to say what's that about when i saw the video i the, the day after it happened I hunted down uh, pretty much the full recording from the guy that, that shot them. And I saw something that I was just like, wow, that's weird. Now, I didn't jump to conspiracy theory, of course, because that would be silly. But it did strike me as odd. In the video, you see him standing there and he, he approaches he approaches the woman and points a gun at, at her and fires. And OK. Now, the thing is, he fires three times. And I guess I'm, I'm used to seeing murders on, on, in movies. It just didn't happen the mm-hmm. way I expected at all. He fired a point blank range two or three times and she basically turned and, and ran away, right? Like right after he was done or right where when he was getting close to yeah. his third shot. And th- that just struck me as odd. I, I didn't see any impacts. I didn't see her just fall, fall on the ground. She just turned and ran. That's exactly it. Your your sensibility, and this is the same thing that conspiracy theorists are doing. They're, they're they're pointing out those same things, but your sensibilities are biased by the overwhelming gore of movie violence. You know yeah. what I mean? Where you see blood spurting and people getting thrown back. It's all extremely dramatic. It's all bullshit. In real life, uh, a lot of different things can happen, right? With a gun. So first of all, you can get shot and not even know it. Yeah, I've heard that. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. The bullets aren't necessarily, especially if it's a smaller caliber bullet, you know, it's not like Dirty Harry where he's got, you know, right. a magnum, a ma- you know, and then he's blowing cannon. somebody back 10 feet. So, yeah, and there's, there's not going to be a spurt of blood necessarily, you know, it's, it's not going to blow the person back. They're, they're, they may not even immediately know that they've been hit. 
there was some recoil on the gun, but to be like, why wasn't there more recoil? Well, you know, there was, there was a reasonable amount of recoil. Uh, they said that if they didn't see the, the cartridges being ejected. That's because of the low frame rate, just didn't pick it up. So yeah, just all these kinds of anomalies or things that don't match our naive sense of what it's yeah. supposed to look like. Like a plane yeah. hitting a building or, yeah, the, or exactly. the Pentagon. Like whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, how do you know what it's supposed to look like? You're basing it on the movies or whatever. Just right. com- lack of experience. But we did post this on Facebook. And it is fun to, to watch comments from people who have actual experience correcting all of the naive assumptions by the conspiracy theorists uh, who just don't know what they're talking about. They're really just talking from – inexperience from naivete yeah. right but yeah you recognize the fact that yeah just what you're what you think is supposed to happen on the movies this is not reality but that's the problem exactly yeah so while you guys were at dragon con this weekend i took my family to bar harbor maine uh it was gorgeous it's a really great vacation destination Why? by the way Why? if you've never been there it's just gorgeous i mean it's no. a it's a beautiful harbor uh we took a tour of the harbor we saw seals i saw american eagles i saw uh porpoises in the harbor uh, wow, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a I'm lot purpose. of very interesting geology because it's was, you know, a lot of it was carved by the glaciers. So you see like mm-hmm. these brown, squared off, jagged rocks on a cliffside, right? And then in the middle of it, there's this smooth white boulder. Yeah. Weird. That was deposited there from 250 miles away after being rolled, you know, and smoothed out by a glacier. Mm-hmm. It's cool. It, it, it's awesome. right there. I mean, so out of place. I have to tell you this one anecdote. So we had, you know, we did a tour of the harbor and the tour guy said, he's been doing this for 20 years. So he was telling us the stupidest things that people have said to him over the years. <laughs> <laughs> then, well, I'll, just, I'll just tell you one. Somebody asked, so we're, we're on the Atlantic Ocean, right, in the harbor. And somebody says, how far above sea level are we here? Oh. <laughs> uh-huh. Wow. <laughs> He looked over the edge and said, oh, 10, 10 feet. feet right? <laughs> <See you later. laughs> Why isn't it ocean level? Okay. <laughs> Whatever. All right. All right. Let's get going. Bob, Bob. you're going to tell us about this week's Forgotten Superhero of Science. Uh, this week, I'm going to talk about Fritz Haber, who was a German chemist and inventor of synthetic fertilizer. He has the distinction of saving more lives than any other scientist, 272 Billion lives, according to the estimate I came across. Wow, that's huge. Uh, Haber was born in 1868, and he died in 1934, and he was born in Breslau, Prussia. Uh, he achieved something that was sought after for about a century or, or more. He figured out how to fix nitrogen from the atmosphere into ammonia to make synthetic fertilizer. That sound That might sound trivial, but boy, it's not. It's not. Up until that time, natural fertilizer like saltpeter had to be taken from the earth and it was calculated that it would run out, causing a hard stop essentially on our ability to feed the world's growing population. Now, Haber came up with a process to use nitrogen from the air and mix it with hydrogen to make ammonia, which was a fantastic starting point for making synthetic fertilizer. Uh, Haber then worked with Carl Bosch to scale up the process for industrial use, developing the first ever high-pressure industrial equipment uh, for which he won a, uh, a Nobel Prize, a shared Nobel Prize. And the result has been called the greatest invention of the 20th century. Now, it's called the Haber-Bosch process, uh, and today it produces, get this, a half a billion tons of fertilizer a year. It uses 1% to 2% of the world's annual energy supply, and it feeds a third to half the people on the planet. 
It's Whoa. it was it's been called the detonator of the population explosion, which the world has seen for the past sixty years or so. Uh, without this process, this this is cool. Without this process, in order to feed today's world, would re- would require the cultivation of half of the world's continents that's not covered in ice. And today, it's only fifteen percent. So we would have to cover half the continents. Uh, with, with farmland to, to produce what we're doing now. And this one was cool too. Almost 80% of the nitrogen in your body's tissues come from this process. Oh, and like, cool. you're right. And it's, cool. and I, I read another estimate that was 60%. So I want to go with the 80 because it sounds cooler. Um, it's, <laughs> it's been estimated that, so like I said, he's potentially has saved 2.72 billion people. Uh, because of this invention, which of course is a hard figure to come up with. I'm not sure exactly how they did it. Yeah, it I'm sure there's a lot of the, assumptions in there. Yes, but, a yeah. lot of assumptions. Somebody else may have developed it a decade or two later and it might not have had uh, much of a difference in terms of world population, but still incredibly impressive, huge, huge impact. Um, but, and that's, so that's the cool stuff, but there's also a nasty dark side to all of this. Haber is also called the father of chemical warfare. He played mm-hmm. he played a major yes. he played a major role in developing Germany's chemical warfare program that killed mm-hmm. about 1.3 million people during World War One. Huge huge number of people. So he's still up by about 2.6 billion. Yeah, yeah, somebody had to say that. <laughs> <Somebody>. <laughs> um, his process was also used to make uh, explosive explosives, which allowed Germany to stay in the war. They would not have been able to stay in the war. Uh, had this not happened. And, uh, and there's also been very non-trivial environmental impacts to all the fertilizer production over the decades. Um, so in his defense, I wanted to find one quote, uh, about this that from Haber himself. He said, during peacetime, a scientist belongs to the world, but during wartime, he belongs to his country. And he also made a somewhat lame claim that, uh, essentially he saved lives by ending the stalemate of trench warfare in World War One. So, um, hmm. so yeah, so interesting, a real dichotomy, this guy. Uh, but so for all these reasons, remember for Tabor, mention him to your friends, perhaps when you're discussing shift conversion, methanation steps and ammonia synthesis loops. Oh, and mustard gas too. Right. Yeah. That's kind of, that was a mixed one there, Bob. Yeah. Yeah. Normally I wouldn't have grabbed, I wouldn't have taken this guy, but I mean, he's flagged as like the, the scientist that has saved more people than anybody far ab- above and beyond anybody else. Yeah, that's, um, I've heard and, of him in that context before. Right, it's definitely and, worth uh, it remembering. And it's important, I think, to discuss historical figures and events, et cetera, and with all their warts. You know what I yeah. mean? We don't have these pristine heroes. There were people who were products of their time who, you know, were, were complicated, who did some good things and did some bad things. And I think it's okay to remember them for all of it, you know? Mm-hmm. All right, let's go on to some news items. This is an interesting one, Kara, about the night sky being considered a park. Whoa. Yeah, you know, I got I got to ask you guys, have any of you ever visited a certified dark sky community? No. I don't think so. Not a certified. Well, I was I, I was in the middle of uh of uh, the Caribbean. That's a dark yeah. sky, right? That's dark sky. I was in New York uh, when the lights went out in August <laughs> of 2003, and that that was amazing. That actually that would. probably would be amazing, but it, it would also interest me to see how much kind of residual light pos- 
pollution you'd have to deal with. There's actually a certified dark sky community in Borrego Springs, California, which is apparently just a, you know, a stone's throw from San Diego. And I am really excited to get my friends together and go down there and spend a weekend. They've got kind of a, a bustling tourist community there for this very reason, because people who live in these certified areas actually they they take real steps to ensure that their dark sky stays dark, like making sure that all of the lights in the town only point to, to the ground and they never leak mm-hmm. upward, which is very cool. Um, I, I ask you that because some estimates say that around 99% of the terrestrial world skies are light polluted. 99%. 90. I know. And really? Uh, over, over yeah, land. Yeah, terrestrial. Yes. Yeah, over land. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Yes. And over two-thirds of all people in the U.S., when they look up at the night sky from their backyards, they can't make out where the band of the Milky Way is, even remotely. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, here in L.A., I have Sad. that problem, definitely. Yeah. I can sort to see it from my backyard. Uh, on a good night, I could see on it a here good in night, Newtown. Yeah, 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 yeah it's yeah, nice. Good night, it's really but cool. most nights, no. Mm-hmm. no. Yeah, and a lot of people uh, listening feel the same way. So the National Park Service, they actually have a somewhat new unit that's called the Natural Sounds and Night Skies Division, which is really cool. It's tasked with protecting and managing these assets, keeping the skies dark and keeping the sounds natural. So basically doing away with pollution from lights and from um, human machines and and different noises like that. The way that the rangers and the park managers actually steward their land is they try to figure out what they call indicators, which are like standards that are set based on sort of public comfort and interest. So one indicator, for example, might be if a park ranger is taking a group of people through a hiking trail, you would count how many other groups you encounter. And then you would ask that group of people, when did it start to feel crowded? And after you collect enough data, you start to draw these lines in the sand that say, okay, we want to make sure that our trails never get crowded beyond this point because it starts to minimize the experience of the people who are coming to the parks. And there's a lot of different examples that maybe the level at which animals start to be disturbed. And we've got to remember that this isn't just about people wanting to come and enjoy nature and it look beautiful and yada yada, even though that's a really big part of it. There's also, you know, real ecological consequences. Like a lot of the world's species rely on the absence of artificial light for breeding and, and for feeding patterns and for mating patterns and things like that. So there's a new study that came out um, actually in the journal, I have it here, uh, Park Science, which, uh, is, uh, part of nature.gov. And it was published by Robert Manning and his colleagues from the University of Vermont Park Studies Laboratory. And what they did is they gave out questionnaires to different park visitors and they wanted to establish some of these key indicators for night sky standards. So after giving out two different types of questionnaires and asking a whole bunch of different questions about people's comfort level, when would they be less likely to come back? When would they be more likely to come back? And and kind of picking based on pictures where cutoffs were. As expected, they found that most visitors reported that illumination from celestial objects, right, like the moon and the stars and planets, really increased their satisfaction of staying at a national park. And illumination from terrestrial objects, especially those created by people like headlights and streetlights and flashlights, decreased it. There was one exception, though, and I kind of I mean, I get it, and it's kind of cool. If you're at a campground, you actually enjoy the feeling of a glowing campfire. And so people actually preferred to see campfires at the campground, and they said that that 
that actually raised their um, their appreciation and their satisfaction of the camp. And then they they did another questionnaire where they were shown uh, a series of images, and those images approximated light pollution in threefold increases from standard levels in 2008 at this park. And they wanted park rater, uh, park goers to rate what was acceptable, and they found that the cutoff was sometime some somewhere between 12 and 18 times more light than was measured in 2008. So it kind of shows that 12 to 18 times more sounds like a lot. It really does. So it kind of shows that people will visit parks regardless. People want to go visit their national parks, but it's obviously not preferable. We would love it if we, we when we went out to nature, one of the things that we got to really appreciate was that we could gaze up at the stars. I mean, this is something that I think has really defined our creativity it's defined our both spirituality and skepticism it's defined our hunger for knowledge staring up at the stars is one of the first things the philosophers ever did and i think it's cool to see that the national park service is working to get real data on how they can try and preserve the night sky as a resource for uh for all of us national parks originally were just for scenic areas and then they expanded mm-hmm. the definition to include ecological preservation um and now they're sort of expanding it further and then it was also like monuments and things like that but now they're expanding it to this just dark skies you know it's not even a thing mm-hmm. it's just the absence of stuff really uh yeah. which is interesting and it's it's so, it's just one of those things that is uh it's a consequence of life and but it's not that difficult to fix if we are cognizant of it. And so even though some of the light pollution is somewhat irreversible when it comes to changes to ecological patterns or animals behavioral patterns, it's fully reversible when it comes to appreciation of the dark sky. All right, well, I promised you guys I would tell you a little bit about uh thinking styles and paranormal belief. Uh, there was a recent study that I blogged about that I, I found very interesting, and it garnered a lot of conversation. This is definitely something that comes up a lot, and this is a question that we get a lot of. A lot of people ask us, "What is it, you know, about conspiracy theories or true conspiracy theorists or true believers or whatever? Is it do, do their brains function differently? Because it certainly seems like it does." Well, this was a study looking at uh, two basic types of thinking styles that psychologists have identified, the so-called analytical style and the so-called intuitive style. Uh, So an intuitive way of thinking. We all, you know, the other thing is that, you know, let me dispense with the false dichotomy right away. We all incorporate both of these thinking styles to some degree, but, you know, some people are more towards the intuitive end. Others are more towards the analytical end. Uh, analytical thinking is skepticism, really, when you think about it. It's, you know, breaking something down, analyzing it in detail, examining the facts, examining the logic. Intuition is all about how something feels, right? Does, it's how it seems to you. Uh, it's a uh, Colbert's truthiness. It's the truthiness, yeah, but it, it, yeah. it's, it's basically giving in to all your cognitive biases. But intuition, as we've We've taken taken pains to point out on the show before. It's not all bad. It's a really good first approximation. We evolved to have adaptive intuition. If somebody doesn't seem quite right to us, we may be responding 
to signals that are actually telling us something use telling us something useful, for mm-hmm. example. So sometimes your intuitions are are good to sort of smell test. And I've read a lot about intuition versus uh, analytical thinking styles in the context of medical decision making, right? When you think about it, physicians are confronted with a patient with a diagnostic question, and you could take an intuitive approach, which is just what does it seem like, you know, pattern recognition, have I seen this before, it just feels like this patient has whatever, Versus analytical, which is breaking it down. Well, X percent of people with this demographic and that symptom are likely to have this diagnosis and we need to obtain this piece of information. And of course, physicians will use both intuitive and analytical styles. We use intuition as a way of recognizing patterns, but then we have to back it up with analysis, right? You want, you want both mm-hmm. to sort of be pointing in the same direction. Uh, and of course, at the end of the day, the, the analytical approach trumps the intuitive approach. The intuitive, intuitive approach is just sort of a, a way to get a leg up, you know. Anyway, what the recent study was asking is, is there a difference between the intuitive and the analytical style of thinking and people's belief in the paranormal? That question has been asked previously, and it does seem that there is that people who, if you, you you can give standardized tests and you, you basically get a score, like where are you on the spectrum from intuitive to analytical, and then you can ask people about their paranormal beliefs. And yeah, people who are more towards the intuitive side will uh, rate higher in certain types of paranormal beliefs. So they're correlated. They do correlate, but it's, it's a little, there's a little complicated. So mm-hmm. th- yes, that correlation exists. But the deeper question is, Why? You know, why is it? Why do people who think intuitively tend to believe in the paranormal more? And that question is sort of where the edge of research is right now. Okay, so this is what the researchers did. So one hypothesis is that intuitive thinkers are more likely to fall for specific logical fallacies or thinking fallacies. Mm -hmm. So, for example, one particular fallacy that has been studied is the conjunction fallacy. And this is just an error of probability thinking. So, for example, the, the classic test of this is, let's say I describe a woman to you, Linda, and Linda has, is concerned with social justice, is, you know, liberal in her thinking and likes art. That's, that's sort of her primary characteristic. What is more likely that Linda is a bank teller or that she's a bank teller and a feminist? Which of those two? Bank teller and a feminist. I think we would probably say feminist. So it's either, because you're, either she's you're, either she's a bank teller or she's a bank teller and a feminist. We'd probably say she's a bank teller and a feminist because we would relate the description that you used more to somebody who would identify as a feminist. Yes, 85% of people answer the question that way. And it's wrong because it has to be less likely for her to be both than either one. Because ah. all... Everyone who's a bank teller and a feminist is also a bank teller, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, But we follow our intuition. We follow, you know, the pattern recognition of she is she that she's representative of a feminist. Therefore, she's more likely to be a feminist. We focus on that and we ignore this the probability because we're good at pattern recognition. We're bad at probability, Mm -hmm. so we we tend to be to focus on. 
the wrong thing when about that question. That's the, that's the conjunction fallacy. Well, it turns out that intuitive thinkers are no more likely to commit the conjunction fallacy than analytical thinkers. Uh, hmm. so that didn't that didn't hold true. Maybe because it's that one is so common that it it the overwhelms the differences in thinking style. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's it's innate almost you know yeah, it's yeah. evolutionarily um advantageous for us whereas probabilistic thinking is just n- not necessary from an evolutionary perspective yeah, yeah 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 so all right so the new this is the new research the researchers bouvet and bonifan and they did a series of three studies and what they did was they faked out subjects to make them think that they had an uncanny experience. So, for example, they had them trying to send ESP, you know, using the the standard five cards, you know, the wavy lines, the star, et cetera, the Zener cards. So then they had a confederate who, like, whatever they were get were projecting, they would guess, you know. So then they would get like three in a row, which is very unlikely. And then they also gave them the classic, the classic astrological reading that is designed to take advantage of the Barnum effect, sure. you know, where it, and everyone would think that the reading was about them, you know, mm-hmm. and they were, and so, but they were told that this was an individualized astrological reading. So in other words, they were given an experience that was rigged to make it seem like there was this correlation, either that they were, re, you know, that they, they were sending ESP or that an astrological reading mm-hmm. was really accurate about them. And then they were asked what they thought about it. How did they interpret it? And, the question was, would people who scored more towards the, the intuitive end of the spectrum be more likely to think that there was a paranormal or supernatural explanation for the apparent experience that they were having than were analytical thinkers? And what do you think the results showed? I want to say that the analytical thinkers were more likely to justify it, you know, with uh, some sort of explanation and the intuitive thinkers were more likely to be like, oh, yeah, that's because my star sign. Yeah, that's exactly what they Agreed. found. Yeah. So, oh, good. Yeah. So they, they actually, that was the <laughs> hypothesis and that's, that's, that's what they found. The th- interesting thing was, is that the, the intuitive versus, um, analytical thinkers were just as likely to perceive that something uncanny happened. The only difference was in their interpretation. The intuitive mm-hmm. thinkers were more likely to interpret it as magical, and the analytical thinkers were like, "Ah, this I still don't believe in ESP or astrology. There's got to be some other explanation for it." Yeah. So they were able mm-hmm. to, I guess, transcend the experience and remain true to logic and evidence, you know, rather than being influenced by what was a rigged experience, but certainly not beyond the realm of experience of you know everyday experience. So interesting result, but I still feel like we're we're scratching the surface there. You know, there's a lot of sort of sub questions that psychologists can explore, and I, I do think that it's still a bit of an open question in terms of what's the real difference between intuitive and analytical thinkers. I also think that there's got to be more than just that one spectrum. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I bet there's more than one spectrum at work here. And, you know, we haven't fully teased it all apart yet. I do think that conspiracy thinkers, while they're in, they are more intuitive, there's something else there as well. Oh, yeah, because yeah. they're like f- almost fundamentally distrusting. So it's almost like skepticism gone too far. Yeah. You know what I yeah. mean? Like it's, it's like too extreme. 
I, I've always wondered that too. If, you know, it's, it's interesting because to look at the research and say, you know, this person has these kinds of behavior patterns or thought patterns. And of course, it's very difficult to speculate about why we have these things and how we developed them. But I, I know that experience, you know, it, it's a, another one of those nature nurture conversations that we have about everything. And I know that experience must play so fully into it. But it's still so interesting to see people that are highly credulous in a family of skeptics. Yeah. Or for example, I was raised in a very religious family and questioned very early, but it, it was like partially an atheistic thing, but it was partially just that I was a super rebellious kid. Yeah. You know, it's like yeah. there's a rebelliousness in it. Exactly. There, there's, you know, there's cynicism. There's con- being a contrarian. Mm-hmm. Some people are just contrarians. They're not really skeptics. But I also yeah. think like the conspiracy mongering, like if you read the comments from the conspiracy theorists, even about this latest thing that, you know, about the uh, the newscaster being shot, it's like, oh, it's obviously fake. You people are sheeple. I mean, they're so emotionally invested in this idea that there's a conspiracy. To them, it's mm-hmm. so obvious that, that, you know, once they see the connection, it speaks to them. You know, on this profound yeah. level that it just consumes their thinking about it, you know? Yeah. And to, to them, it's almost painful that other people yes. don't see it the way yeah. that exactly. they see it. And they can't really come to grips with that. But you know what? That's probably kind of the same way that we feel when we see somebody who just passionately believes in ghosts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it does. They, kind of, they, I do have almost an emotional response where it's like, how can you see? How can you not see that this is fake? Yeah. I, I, but Kara, <laughs> that's what I find annoying about that whole scenario that I can seemingly uh, uh, feel as passionate about something as somebody else. And, you know, luckily I've got science on my side, but still it's like, damn, you know, they, they feel just like I do. They think I'm a jerk just the way I might feel that, that, that their belief is completely unjustified. It's like, it's a little frustrating. That's why, it is frustrating. That's why I think it's important to always step back, you know, even yeah. when it's like the process is what's, is what matters. You know, you always got to get back to the process, the process, because otherwise, if you get invested in being skeptical, even like whatever the skept- being skeptical is, like whatever the skeptical attitude about something is, it's like, well, you know, it, that that's not the right approach either. It's just it's the skepticism is a process and you always got to get back to that. It's, but the problem with conspiracy theorists is that it's always a conspiracy, right? That's they're, yeah. they're well, not yeah, following a, a process. Of- it's the conspiracy. And that's really what it comes down to. It's a lack of balance. You know, good scientific thinkers and good skeptical thinkers are still open-minded. It's about balancing the two. It's about being skeptical and open-minded at the same time, which almost seems like a contradiction, but it's absolutely necessary to be able to be both of those things. But they're not asking that question. They're not asking the question, is it really, really true? Right. That's what I find myself asking when I'm being skeptical. Whatever it is, mm-hmm. it's like, is this really, really true? Can I conclude confidently that whatever claim is being made or whatever is reliable, is likely to be true? And they're not asking that. They're seeing right. the anomalies no. and they're the solid, rock solid in their, in their conviction that it's a conspiracy. Right. And they're not stepping back and saying, okay, is it, 
Is that really the best explanation here? Is there anything else that could be going on? And to an even lesser extent, you see it even in the scientific community where you have scientists who are strong scientists, but they're not necessarily fully skeptical thinkers. Yeah. Uh-huh. And maybe it actually, I shouldn't say maybe, it does make them weaker in their scientific investigations because this is where you see mistakes where somebody feels so passionate about their hypothesis or about their model that they start fitting the data to the model. Yeah, yeah. Yes, instead of making the model based on the data. Yeah. Yeah. Another great technique is to ask, what would it take to convince you? If you can't, if you can't come up with something, that is a gargantuan red flag right there. And if you ever hear yourself saying that, you've got to step back and think about it. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. That's That's a red flag. Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask you guys a question because I do ask this about myself. And I have an answer that may surprise you. So I do think that like when, when I talk to people in the skeptical movement, I again, this is a false dichotomy. People are on the spectrum. But I do feel that there are a couple different flavors of skeptics. There are people for whom belief in something transcendent holds absolutely no appeal to them. They just don't get it. They never mm-hmm. believed. They never had faith. It never had the slightest appeal for them, and mm-hmm. they just don't understand it. And then there's other skeptics who I think understand the appeal of transcendence. I'll use that term as sort of a generic term for any kind of transcendence, and in fact may have have had a belief system at some point in their life, mm-hmm. uh, but then step back from it because of the skeptical analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, so like for me, uh-huh. I totally get the transcendent thing. I, I totally sure. get it. I understand why feeling like you're part of something bigger than yourself is emotionally appealing. Uh, but I pull back from that be- be- because of my dedication to logic and skepticism. Carrie, t- I'm interested in what you would say because from what you've said, like the whole idea of believing never hold any sway for you. Yeah, you know, I think the interesting thing is that this is both uh, a defining feature of a person's personality, but I think it also changes through time and growth and maturity. So I was raised very, very religiously, for example, and in a family that was um, moderately credulous, mostly only credulous about religion, uh, but but relatively scientific. You know, there were educators and engineers, my parents. Uh, so I think when I first rejected religion, I became one of those people who had no patience and no understanding whatsoever for anything. Like people would use the word spiritual and I'd be like, I don't know what that means. That's a meaningless term. Like I was really weird about it. But the older that I get, I think the more understanding I am for the need for that kind of experience in some people's lives. And I start, I think I've also started to understand context more and history and tradition. And even though it doesn't really stick for me, I think I'm much more empathetic about what it can do for other people. So that's my question. Is it an intellectual understanding on your part or could you feel it? You know, can you feel the need for transcendence? I think it's probably an intellectual understanding on my part, but there's a handful of different punctuated experiences that I think I can use as strong analogy. So the same way that I can never speak the language of, of physics because I can't speak the language of math the way that strong physicists can, I can try and understand physical concepts through analogy. I remember going to church and I was a singer. I was always a singer growing up. It yeah. was my first love. It's what I went to school to study. And I would quote unquote feel the spirit when I would be singing. I 
I would get the goosebumps and it was like these religious songs and they meant so much to me. And then I realized later, it's not God, it's just music. Yeah. I just really love music. But, but I think that in those moments, it's kind of a portal to what other people are experiencing. Okay. It's the closest that I could get. Yeah, it's closest feeling... you get to it, yeah. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah, so yeah. there's a lot of different, there's a lot of nuance here. I don't think we're anywhere close to an answer. But I do think it's helpful to think about intuition versus anal- analytical thinking. I do think there's something fundamental about that difference. And, and I do think we all incorporate both. And it's interesting to think about it explicitly. What am I doing right now? Am I being intuitive or am I being analytical? And what's the huh. strength and weaknesses of both, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about our sponsor this week, The Great Courses. And this week, the special course we're offering you is one of my two courses, Your Deceptive Mind, A Scientific Guide to Critical Thinking Skills. That sounds absolutely necessary for every single person in their daily lives. Absolutely. These are 24, 30-minute lectures, and I tried to cover essentially all of skepticism. So it is a great primer, and in fact, it gets pretty deep in certain areas. As you can imagine, I spend two lectures just talking about innumeracy. You know, I get I try to go pretty deep. So even for somebody who's been listening to the to the SGU for a, a long time, you know, hopefully there's still some gems in there. It's also good that it's like all at once. You know what I mean? Yeah. You get it. You kind of get a piecemeal the the critical thinking in the show. But here it's like here's thirty logical fallacies. Here's all the cognitive biases all at once. So I had a I had a good time doing this course. This was sort of right in my sweet spot. I love that. And guys, even if you've already heard Steve's course, there are over 500 lecture series available on The Great Courses. They're celebrating their 25th anniversary right now. So many interesting subjects, so many different formats. I mean, something for everybody. But guys, as awesome as this is, it's only available for a limited time. The Great Courses has a special offer just for our listeners Order from eight of the best-selling courses, including Steve's, all up to 80% off the original price, free streaming with any format. This is a great deal, but it's only available for a limited time. Yeah, you have to do it now. So go to thegreatcourses.com slash skeptics today. That's thegreatcourses.com slash skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. Evan, so I understand that the UK's uh, College of Policing has some uh, some professional practice advice for uh, for their members. Breaking news! Breaking news! I'm, so, I'm guys. I'm sorry, but oh, the baby oh. is born. The baby oh. is born. Oh, I told you before see, we're done with the show. Yep, you nailed it, Steve. That's amazing. I see, I see Hooray, pictures I would shout of Olivia. <laughs> Congra- congratulations, Jay and Courtney! Yay! Congratulations, guys! Awesome! Yeah. Yeah. That's hey. effing awesome! So cool! Sorry, sorry, That's Evan. Great. <laughs> oh, have Please. you guys noticed that life happens while we're podcasting because <laughs> yeah, we do it so much because <laughs> we're always we're podcasting, always podcasting, podcasting yeah. <laughs> alright where's Jay he's derelict now he needs to get his bet <laughs> no excuses now <laughs> <laughs> college of policing well let's just say that they ha- they set themselves up to have some pretty you know high standards as they should so what they have is a um set of guidelines essentially or you know rules that they that they follow and it's all very neatly uh put together in an outline here right on their website uh missing persons they talk about uh management of absent people absence management a whole family support search whole lot of things oh here's one oh psychics oh 
Section 10.1.6, they talk about psychics. Well, what the heck is that all about? So as we look into this section in which they talk about missing persons and psychics, this is what they have to say right from their website. High-profile missing person investigations nearly always attract the interest of psychics and others, such as witches and clairvoyants, stating that they possess extrasensory perception. Any information received from psychics should be evaluated in the context of the case and should never become a distraction to the overall investigation and search strategy unless it can be verified. These contacts usually come from well-intentioned people, but the motive of the individual should always be ascertained, especially where financial gain is included. The person's methods should be asked for, including the circumstances in which they receive the information and any accredited successes. Yes, it's sort of good to be aware that psychics will come out of the woodwork, as we know, to help police and investigations and, and, and so forth. And what is the what is the correct way to deal with these people who do come out and offer these services. Um, They're not to be dismissed out of hand, not because of their supposed supernatural abilities, but because they may actually have some information that could possibly be of use to the case um, of a non-psychic nature. Um, so that, therefore, they should not just be dismissed out of hand. Hmm. Yeah, it's possible somebody who actually has some information about the case may couch it in terms of like a vision or psychic just to not give away where they got the information or they may or, gotcha. or right. you know they may be self-promoting as a psychic and did some real did some real investigation themselves and came up with something interesting so unfortunately you can't ignore what they're saying you but and but you do have to put it into context that's kind of a a catch-all term, put it into context. If you do that properly, right. you know, then it could, you know, allow you to very quickly deal with just, you know, crazy psychics who are trying to self-promote while still keeping an eye out for any real information that may be coming under the guise of psychic information. They mention here that, you know, these psychics are should be treated as well-intentioned people, yes, but beware in case there is financial gain to be had uh, on the part of the psychics, which is not usually the motivation of a psychic to become involved in police investigations. Yeah, that was naive. Rather, totally naive. Yeah. Yeah. Rather, what they'll do, psychics will try to latch themselves onto these cases in order to further promote their supposed psychic abilities when they are selling their abilities to other people down the line. Yeah, they're basically just trying to make money on their psychic business and then promoting themselves by saying they helped yeah, the, the police. Uh, and they'll also use any apparent hits in one case to get their foot in the door on the next one, you know. And they're just playing the lottery, right? They're just... It's it's just cold reading. You just do you do a number enough cold readings. You're going to get say something that turns out to be true enough that you could turn it into a hit, and then suddenly you broke this case wide open. You know, well, especially with like a missing persons yeah. case where it's like, okay, it was a family member. Well, you're probably likely to be correct yeah. by saying it was They're a family. Dead. You know, I there's see like a shallow grave. Yeah, come on. Yeah, exactly. It's like, okay, come on. That's what the data show. Your kid's dead. <laughs> yes, of course, Sylvia Brown. Yeah, and of course, that's yeah. They, these vultures are uh, can be very harmful. You know, if they give misinformation or they give false hope to a family, or even you know, Sylvia Brown didn't mind telling parents that their kid was dead, even when they weren't. 
Oh, God. She was so disgusting. Imagine. I know. It makes me wonder, though, again, what is the motivation here? Is it that the UK's College of Policing, is that the guy who wrote the draft has like a wife who works as a psychic and he didn't want to piss her off? Is it that they're trying to be really PC? It read to me like it was written off the cuff by somebody who had no idea what he was talking about and was just saying what made (laughs) sense to them. Gotcha. You know, without they should have consulted right. Joe Nickel or you know a skeptic or or the Merseyside somebody, skeptics, yes, somebody some, who actually someone. knew what they were talking about and could have told them that no, they're not trying to make money; they're trying to promote themselves. You know, no, which will downstream yeah, make them money. Which will downstream make them money? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's it's indirect. It's not direct. They're leeches, essentially. They're latching. Who on. are like? How about a good expo- a good brief explanation of a cold reading? You know, the kind yeah. of techniques that they're likely to use. Uh, or the ways in which they can interfere with an investigation. Contaminate yeah, contaminate an investigation. They fact. really provided no useful information to no. the people they're supposed to be advising. It was like, yeah, it's all the common sense stuff that somebody who is naive and doesn't have any actual information would just make up if they had to write something about psychics in that document. Well, and let's not forget that like putting energy and resources into listening to psychics is taking away from resources yes. that are vitally necessary Sure. In tracking down a missing yeah, person. Yeah, they often distract from the investigation. All right, Bob, you have a special report for us on time travel. Yes. Traveling to the future, definitely. Traveling to the past, maybe, but probably not. I'm done. Okay. Wow, that <laughs> was quick. That I was love good. it. It's it faster than a quickie with Pithy. Um, I was doing a panel on time travel for Dragon Con, and so I took a deep dive like I haven't done in quite a while. And I just wanted to uh, just relay a complete overview of the possibility of time travel according to physics as I am interpreting it. So time travel may seem like two sides of the same coin. If you can travel into the future, uh, you could travel into the past. It's pretty much the same thing. And uh, if you look at a lot of the fictional time travel machines that are that are all over the place, they always have a forward and reverse button, pretty much every every single one of them. But reality is quite different. Um, so I'll talk about going to the future first. When you look at the physics of traveling into the future faster than an hour per hour, of course, uh, it's all about time dilation. Now, time dilation is an outgrowth of Einstein's special theory of relativity. And basically, in order for the speed of light to remain constant, which it always does, no matter how, no matter what you do, it's always going at the speed of light. In order for that to happen, space and time needs to do some really bizarre stuff. And that includes slowing down time the faster you go relative to the place that you left. And so this is called relative velocity time dilation. And it is a fact. It is clear. There is no question about it. Time slows down when you when you get close to the speed of light. It, yep. if you, there's so much of our technology actually depends on that. GPS, if you look at subatomic particles – Clearly, this is happening. Subatomic particles, certain certain uh, subatomic particles decay after a very, very brief period of time. Uh, for example, when cosmic rays enter the atmosphere, uh, muons are, are created. And those muons only last about 1.5 microseconds. They do not last a very long time. 
But if you put muon detectors on the surface of the Earth, they do detect them at sea level. They should never get that that far, especially if they only travel at, you know, even if they only live 1.5 microseconds, they should never get that deep. Uh, so if you look at it a little more closely, you find that they, they are surviving 170 microseconds, far, far longer than they should. And that's because they are traveling at relativistic velocities and their clocks are not traveling nearly as fast as our clocks, although they would never even know about it. Okay, time dilation is happening. What does that mean to a flesh and blood would-be time traveler? Uh, unfortunately, you're not going to be able to step into your little fo- uh, phone booth time machine or your DeLorean to travel into the future. You're going to need to get police aborted. box. Come on, Bob. What did I say? <laughs> phone booth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you need to get on a spaceship and you need to travel in space. That that's how it's going to happen. And ludicrous speed may not be enough. <laughs> you're you're going to need to hit holy crap speed in order to really start time traveling. That's because the relativistic effects of high velocity don't amount to much until you're traveling very very fast. We're talking a significant fraction of the speed of light. Typically around 99% if you look at the chart of uh, when things like this start happening as your velocity increases, you're about at 99% the speed of light when when your clock seriously starts slowing down. Um, so then as you mount the decimals 99.9, then 0.99, etc., your ship's clock really starts uh, really starts slowing down. And of, and of course, you do not notice this. Everything is fine according to you. But if you could somehow look outside your ship at, say, the planet you left, things they would be going very, very fast. Now, the other side of that time dilation coin is uh, what's called gravitational time dilation. This comes from general relativity. And this says that the closer you are to a uh, gravitational field, the slower time goes. So, uh, if you are living at sea level, time is going more slowly for you than it would be for somebody living on a mountain. So if you really wanted to take advantage of this, you would have to do something crazy like orbit an immense gravitational field like a black hole, orbit it really close. Um, and if you could survive those uh, very fast orbits, uh, you could orbit it, say, for uh, say for a week and then get back to Earth. And then Earth, when you're done or you, when you get out of that orbit, Earth could be, you know, hundreds of years or thousands or millions of years in the future only because you were you were very close to a to a high gravitational source. So so that's going to the future. Definitely possible. Um, might not be very practical. The other coin or the, the other side of the original coin now is traveling to the past. So the classic argument against traveling into the past is that it completely screws with causa- causality. Um, and that's a pretty persuasive argument. And this is, of course, codified in the grandfather-grandmother paradox. If you go back in time and kill a grandparent, then you won't be born. But if that's the case, and how do you go in the past in the first place to, to kill your grandparent? Just like, how is that going to happen? Major paradox there. But there are a couple ways to actually deal with that uh, seemingly insurmountable problem. One that I came across is called the Novikov conjecture. And it basically says that there's a zero probability that a time traveler will create a paradox. So if you try to kill your grandfather, for example, for example, something will stop you from doing that. And uh, one way to interpret that is that uh, the future is the result of everything that has happened in the past, which is obvious, but that includes all attempts to go back in time. So if you went back in time, then that's fine, but whatever you accomplished kind of bubbled through into the future and that and has helped make our, our current future. So another option 
uh, is interesting because it, it neatly slices away the paradox problem uh, because it essentially says that when you time travel, what you're essentially doing uh, when you go into the past is you're traveling to an alternate universe. So anything that you do, you cannot create a paradox because you're not from their future. So no paradox is possible. That's like a, that's like a quantum yeah. uh, interpretation. It's, yeah, many worlds. You're making another yeah, many worlds hypothesis thing. You're just going to another quantum state. Yeah, it's 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 similar, and it's not time travel. It's just really just travel to an alternate universe. So it's really not even not even time travel. But well, some I people know, do believe about that. that. I mean, it still could be traveling in time. Well, all travels time travel, technically. Yeah, but it's I guess. But in but so it's doing, just, you're also traveling to a different quantum, whatever universe. Right. Yeah. I, I don't know if quantum universe. I'm not sure how accepted that is, but it, yeah, I just find it. Wow, I learned you're about that really on Star Trek, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> General relativity has certain solutions, though, that does seem to allow travel into the past. And uh, for that, it's all about closed time-like curves. So if closed time-like curves can be found or created, it might just be possible then to go to go back into into time. Now, uh, what a, what is a closed time-like curve? It's this is kind of a critical concept for this. Uh, so I found uh, various ways to try to wrap your head around it. So each of these these, these are different ways to say the same thing. Um, a closed time-like curve is space bent in such a way, or space time bent in such a way that timelines turn back on themselves, forming loops. You could look at it also as world lines forming closed loops in space-time, which permit time travel to the past. And another one, let's see, uh, certain geometries of space-time that allow motion backwards through time. And a, a, a quick and easy definition is that there are space-time paths that allow you to cut through space and time. Um, so that's what a closed time-like curve is. And that's if, – if we're going to be able to go back in time, this is the only way that science offers any type of support, tenuous as it is. Now, the most fleshed-out example of a closed time-like curve is the iconic and theoretical wormhole. These are essentially open-ended topological tubes of space-time that could potentially send you to distant parts of the universe, uh, dis a different part of the universe at a different time, or even potentially even other universes. Now, there's kind of different variants of, uh, of wormholes. The one we're interested in is called a traversable wormhole, since this is the one that would allow um, a person to go through it and not just something like, say, a subatomic particle. Um, one, one problem with these is that um, some theories say that you need to hold it open and make it large enough for a person to go through, and it would need to be supported, theoretically at least, by something called exotic matter. Uh, and th this can be thought of as matter uh, with a negative energy density, and that's just, just theorized. Uh, it's never been found, and it might not even exist. To, so to use this to use a wormhole as a time machine, what you need to do is you need to somehow, nobody ever says how, but you need to somehow attach one end of that wormhole to a spaceship, then fly away, and you'd have to eventually reach relativistic speeds. Um, and then once that happens, our good friend time dilation kicks in. So you're traveling at, at uh, these speeds, and say you leave at the year 2020. And you travel for a while, very, very fast. Then you bring that um, that movable end of the wormhole back to the static end. And uh, it may be 2025, ship time. 
but you have been gone for, say, two centuries. So now one end of the wormhole is from 2020. The other one is uh, 2220. Uh, so if you then would go into the t- uh, the 2020 end of the wormhole, you would come out in 2020 at the other end. But you could have went into the 2020 and in, in the year 2220. So that is essentially going back in time. Mm-hmm. And so that is okay. that's that's just a basic overview of of how that kind of idea works. Now, uh, there's other types of these closed timeline curves that people talk about. Some of them involve black holes. Some of them involve primordial cosmic strings, uh, which are infinitely long, inc- smaller than a proton, rips in the fabric of space. Really incredibly dense. Uh, there are some equations that say if they're approaching each other parallel, that they can bet they could warp space time to such an extent that it could create these closed time like curves and allow you to travel in past. So as, as science fictiony and cool as all this sounds, of course, there's, there's lots of caveats, even more than I've mentioned. If you create a time machine to go back in time using a closed time like curve, you will not be able to travel earlier in time than the creation of the time machine itself. So yeah, so that's my overview of the physics of time. Time travel. I think it's likely Ooh. that the universe does not allow time travel into the past. Yeah, yeah it's I just impossible. It's past, I'm on that yes. camp. I think so. Yeah, yeah I, th- I think Hawkins uh, thinks uh, he thinks many things, but I think one of the things he said was that if if it's possible, it might allow cer- ver- certain things like subatomic particles to travel in the past in such a way well, right. that that they could never influence the past. But right. you you would never be able to get a macroscopic object to, to do that. Kind of like like qu- like quantum mechanics. You've got all this yeah. weird counterintuitive mm-hmm. uh, behavior, but it's really only at the quantum scale it's it's not it's you're never going to see superposition of a person or for example just nothing that's going to happen macro all right well kara you you've been jealous for a while that i have the rest of us have our special little segments that we do and you wanted a special segment of your own and we've been sort of going through certain possibilities but i think we settled on a very interesting one so tell us about it yeah i am excited to tell you What's the word? What's this the week? word, Kara? Yeah. So I think <laughs> what we'll do is each week I will pick a word that I've come across through my scientific reading, a word that is related to science or skepticism that most of us may have heard in passing, but probably don't really know what it means or we don't have a clear understanding of its usage. And I will dig into the history and the usage of that word. So. The word I've chosen this week, with with the help of some of my friends, actually, because they get frustrated when they read this word, is stochastic. Ah, that's a great word. Can mm-hmm. you spell that for us, please? I can spell it. Ooh, now I feel like I'm a I'm in a spelling bee. It's S T O C H A S T I C. Can you use it in a sentence? <laughs> I it's, it's actually not as easy to use in a going. sentence as you would like, but okay. I, I do have some. Uh, I have some some sentences I'll use later on. But I was going to ask you guys first and foremost. You've come across the word stochastic, right? Oh yeah, sure. Do you know off oh, the top sto- of your head what it means? Yeah, my understanding of stochastic is that it is a process that is uh, random in the particulars, but is statistical in the aggregate. And that is a very specific usage of that word. Yeah. So, so let's go back to where the word came from 
and how it's used today. So stochastic comes from the Greek stokos. It first appeared in the 1660s in Greece. And stokos, which is a noun, means to aim or to guess or to take a stab at. That evolved into stochas... I can't even pronounce it. This My Greek is not very good, you guys. Uh, stochasistai, which is a verb to guess or conjecture. And then stochastikos, which is an adjective that means pertaining to conjecture. And stochastic is an adjective. It sounds like an adjective, which really fundamentally just means random. It's randomly determined. Now, we often hear it used in a very specific statistical um, context, where there it refers to a random probability distribution or pattern that we can statistically analyze, but we can never precisely predict because it has that random variable within it. So, so stochastic originally just meant to guess or to take a stab at something. The first use relating to its modern definition, which is kind of randomly determined in English was in 1934. And that came from the German stochastic in 1917. Steve, you were referring to a stochastic process, which is actually a statistical process that involves a number of random variables that depend on a variable parameter. So let's say it's time and you never know, like the time part of it is random. But once the process occurs, then you can measure the dependent variable on it. It's Complicated. Now, it's also used in linear algebra. A stochastic matrix is a matrix where each column entry is non-negative, real, and add up to one. So that's an interesting usage. Um, stochastic geometry is the study of random spatial patterns. And I feel like sometimes in literature, if you've come across this word, you will have read it being used uh, just to refer simply to something involving random chance, probability, or variability. Like I might say... My sleep patterns are totally stochastic or, you know, so-and-so seems to pick his dates stochastically. That is how it's kind of evolved into a more literary usage. Now, I found um, on vocabulary.com, they have a really cool metric. I have no idea how they calculate it. It uh, looks like their algorithms are probably proprietary. So who knows if this is true or not. But they it says that you will encounter the word stochastic about once every 311,035 pages of reading. Which is interesting. Wow. And also, yeah. I, I think an important note is that stochastic is not related to stoichiometry, which right. may be, a, yeah, you might be trying to relate those things in your head if you have done any work in chemistry or biochemistry. This is the calculation of reactants and products within a chemical reaction. You know, stoichiometry is how you're trying to balance the equation so that you can calculate um, the reactants and the products. That word, stoichiometry, has the Greek, it's also Greek, but the root of it is stoichin, which means element, and metron, which means measure. So that's literally translated to the measure of the elements. My interaction with stochastic is often in a biological context. A lot of biological processes are stochastic in that the way I described, the individual things that happened are randomly determined, but the net result, it can be described statistically and is actually fairly predictable. You know, it's like the developmental biology is stochastic. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. the, the cells are just doing random things, but in the aggregate, they're you can their behavior is statistical and therefore predictable. Does that make sense? Yeah, or, 
Totally. Yeah. If you think about um, pharmacology, think about a drug. The way that it works when you take a drug is that that drug randomly floats around until it binds to a receptor. That binding process is random, but as you increase the concentration of the drug, you increase the you know probability that the drug will bind. Yeah. So you can look at overall dosages, but you can never say what's happening at an individual receptor level. Exactly. Yeah, it's totally stochastic. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, cool word. I like this segment, yeah. Kara. I think it's yeah, going to work fun. out really well. Cause, oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. Words are concepts. I also love words. You know, just, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, g- giving, uh, our listeners sort of expanding their scientific jargon is, I think, really useful because again, it oh, does, yeah. g- it helps you own the concept. And plus, it helps you understand what the hell you're reading, you know, because you <laughs> totally. encounter these, you encounter these terms and it's, you sometimes you sort of skip over it because you have a vague understanding of what it is. And so you just sort of, that's good enough. But to really understand it, I think it helps you dig a level deeper into what you're reading. And sometimes you're straight up wrong. Yeah. Like you think, you think based on context that it means one thing because it always works, but it actually means something totally different. And also I think, you know, for me, my background is in biology and psychology and the neurosciences. So there's a lexicon that I'm pretty comfortable with. But when I'm reading a paper, like, you know, Bob, you read a lot of cosmology and astrophysics. And when I come across terms in that field, I'm like, what? What? So yeah. I think it's cool that people who have different strengths um, can can still always learn something new. Yeah, yeah. Hey, and if you're a listener, if you have a good suggestion, like a really nice, juicy scientific term, send it in. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll make a list. Yeah. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake. I challenge my expert skeptics to tell me which one is the fakerino. There is no theme this week, just regular news items. Are you all ready? I'm never Season ready four. for this. All right, never ready. <laughs> so here we go. Item number one, a new analysis finds that iconicity, the sound of words reflecting their meaning, is not rare as once thought, but can be found throughout the English language. Item number two, brown-headed cowbirds lay their eggs in the nests of other birds to be raised, but a new study finds that female cowbirds track the well-being of their abandoned offspring. And item number three, researchers have developed a capsule that automatically degrades medication after a specific length of time to prevent water contamination from discarded medication. Evan, go first. Well, um, iconicity, the sound of words reflecting their meaning. So let me clarify for you. This goes beyond onomatopoeia. Yeah. Okay. That's what I was wondering. I I figured you would all immediately think, oh, is this just onomatopoeia? Onomatopoeia is when a word sounds like what the thing actually sounds like. Bam. Like spring or bam. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Boing. But uh, this is, you know, it said reflecting their meaning. In other words, not sounding like their meaning, but in, in ways other than just onomatopoeia. <laughs> so this if that, really, if that helps you, <laughs> I can't wait till the end so you yeah. can give me an example of iconicity because I'm still confused. maybe it's fake, maybe it's ah. fake. So this rarity is not rare as once thought, but can be found throughout the English language. Mm, okay, so the question is: Is this as rare as we think it is, or thought it was perseived that it was? Um, seeing as how I really not 
paid much attention to it, uh, give it much thought. Uh, it certainly could only be less rare than than it was. So <laughs> I think I think that one's going to turn out to be uh, correct. Uh, okay, there's something in the universe called a brown-headed cowbird. <laughs> you learn something new every day. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> the supposed cow-headed Brown-headed brown cowbird lay their eggs in the nest of other birds to be raised, but a new study finds that females track the well-being of the abandoned offspring. Hmm. Seems like a lot of work. And is it supposed to be feeding its young or something? Uh, something I don't know. This one that seems weird. The last one is about the capsule that automatically degrades medication. After a specific length of time to prevent water contamination from discarded medication, the capsule automatically degrades medication. So basically, you just it sits there and has a time release, boom, and that's it. And then it spills its contents all over the place. Well, it's the for me, it's the cowbirds. I, I think that uh, the female cowbirds uh, wouldn't have the time to go and track the well-being of their abandoned offspring. They'd be wasting all their time doing that and not doing all the other things they would need to do. Okay, Kara? Iconicity. I second what Evan said. I have literally never heard of iconicity. I have heard of onomatopoeia, which is what it kind of sounds like, but I have not heard of iconicity. So it's not as rare as we once thought. Well, yes, it's very rare in both Evan <laughs> Evan and my heads <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because we have never heard of it. So it is probably less rare than that if it is even real. So I'm going to say that that's science. Um, brown-headed cowbirds lay their eggs in the nests of other birds to be raised, but now scientists are saying that the female cowbirds keep track of their abandoned offspring. I'm actually going to say that this is also science. First of all, I have no idea if a brown-headed cowbird is a real bird. Sounds like it could be a real bird. <laughs> there are birds that hang out with cows. I think that, you know, they have like a symbiotic relationship. That sounds reasonable. I mean, no more crazy than a jackal. Am I right? Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> I've heard of a jackal. Uh, yeah, I've heard of it. I also think that, and I, I'm really throwing, you know, darts at a dartboard here, but I, in in things that I've read about birds, you know, we've all seen March of the Penguins. They seem to, and it, it's probably totally variable because there's so many bird species, but there does seem to be some amount of bonding in birds that is almost akin to mammalian bonding that you don't always see in like reptiles or amphibians, both between offspring and parents and also between uh, mating partners. Like you'll see some kind of seasonal monogamy in birds, which is really interesting. So this one to me doesn't seem that crazy. So I'm going to say that that's science also, which would leave me with the la last one being fiction. And the reason I think this is fiction is that a capsule that automatically degrades medication after a specific length of time. Well, we already have a capsule that automatically degrades, like the outside of the capsule degrades so that the medication itself can be time released in your body. But here we're talking about the capsule degrading the medication. Well, what does it mean to degrade something? Usually it means that it's diluted. Well, that falling into water would dilute it anyway. But that's a problem because we see medication, you know, especially like birth control and stuff, feminizing fish in the waterway. So so the idea here is let's not contaminate the water. Let's degrade the medication. I can't think of a chemical way to actually change the concentration or change the chemical structure of the medication so that it's now fully ineffectual. Because I think that usually it's the component parts that are actually causing most, most of the detriment. So I'm going to say that one. And... I'm probably wrong. 
Okay, Bob. Okay, number one, iconicity. Yeah, I've never heard of it as well, uh, but I'm not surprised that there that they would be kind of a more maybe a more subtle uh, version of uh, onomatopoeia that uh, that that can be found. Uh, frequently in our language, I just I'm just frustrated that I can't think of an example. But that kind of has the ring of truth to me. Uh, the brown-headed cowbirds. Yeah, I'm gonna go with this one. I'm gonna say this one in science as well because it's ambiguous how long the the mom tracks the well-being of the of the abandoned offspring. If it was say for the rest of the life of the bird, I would probably say no. But uh, I see no reason why the bird couldn't just take a jaunt over to the uh, over to the nest and make sure the egg is in good shape or that the the young hatchling is uh, is doing okay. I mean, there would be some selective pressure uh, for the mom to do that to make sure that their her offspring uh, is still doing okay. I mean, perhaps the the nest uh, was abandoned. Say, um, then she could just grab that egg and bring it somewhere else, or if she could even carry it. Um, I, yeah, I assume she carries it or does she lay it in the nest? Hmm, I don't know, but I'm still going to go with that. Um, the, uh, the third one. Yeah, I'm agreeing the one about the capsule, uh, degrading the medicine. I'm going to agree, uh, with Kara on this one that that makes a lot of sense. I'm trying to think of the mechanism that would be used to degrade the medication. Um, uh, I guess it's possible, but I mean, you're adding more, more chemicals to the medicine. Uh, of course, they'd have to be tested uh, to make sure that they're not uh, messing with the, the person ingesting them. And I, I don't, I wouldn't necessarily want to ingest extra medicine to, uh, to in order to make sure that it's disposed of properly. If I'm, if I'm, if I don't handle my medicines properly, um, I, I just don't think it would be necessarily very easy to do that. I mean, you're basically you'd have to deactivate the active ingredient, and uh, I mean, I don't know if they would just put extra stuff in there just to do that. Although that kind of problem does need to be taken care of. I don't think this is a, the best way to do it. Um, just in terms of, uh, of, of, uh, you know, patient acceptance of that type of thing. Uh, so I'm going to say the, uh, the capsule is fiction. Okay. So we'll take this in order since you all agree that the first one is real. Uh, a new analysis finds that iconicity, the sound of words reflecting their meaning is not rare as once thought, but can be found throughout the English language. You all think this one is science, and this one is Say it. science. Yeah, baby. Yay. <laughs> yeah, this one's very interesting. Yeah, iconicity could be very subtle. It's not onomatopoeia, but it's just that the way words sound is some kind of intuitive hook or clue as to what the word might mean. Which makes a lot of yeah. sense, right? That makes yeah. a lot of sense that words yeah, would have think, that characteristic. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And in fact, it may help children learn language. It may help infants understand that these sounds that we're making have specific meanings. You know? It also helps us do well on our SATs and our GREs. Ooh. Yeah, but it might not be that <laughs> granular. But so let me give you some examples. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> So our first one with real words, um, the word tiny versus the word huge, <laughs> right? Yeah. Tiny sounds like a small word. The sounds in it are Teeny small. tiny. Mm-hmm. Whereas huge has the, the, the sounds, the vowels are big. So that's an example of iconicity. Wow. Some subjectiveness there. Yeah. Of course. Of course. But you can study it. So they So linguists did a study where they – Asked that they showed subjects two objects. One of the objects was pointy, and the other was round. 
<laughs> and then they said, one of these objects is called a kiki, and the other one is called a booba. Oh, come on. <laughs> which one, which is which? And most people... Kiki, pointy. Yeah. Pointy is kiki, and round is booba. Why? Because booba's a round word, and kiki is a sharp word. That's amazing. Yes. That's, I love that's that. That's really what I... That's really what I meant when I said, like, I remember taking my GREs and being like, I don't know what any of these words mean, but I know that this word sounds sad. Yeah, yeah, this okay, word I This sounds gotcha. negative, and it actually does help you it do gives process you a of le- elimination. Yeah, it gives you a little leg up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> so an exhaustive study of actually English and Spanish in this recent study uh, found that it, this kind of, of phenomenon, iconicity, was much more common than was previously thought. The conventional wisdom was that the sounds which came to represent specific meanings was essentially random. There was no rhyme or reason for it outside of onomatopoeia, right? But they're finding that, no, there's actually a a pattern there. The the sounds are not random. And in fact, they follow these, you know, certainly subjective rules of iconicity. And it's it's pervasive. It exists throughout the English language. Uh, So iconicity is not stochastic. Right. Oh, I see what you did there. there. You did the word and the thing. Yeah. 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 Interesting. (laughs) Okay, let's move on to number two. Brown-headed cowbirds lay their eggs in the nests of other birds to be raised, but a new study finds that female cowbirds track the well-being of their abandoned offspring. Evan, you think this one is the fiction. Bob and Carrie, you think this one is science. And this one is... Say it. Science. Yeah, baby. Oh. Oh, sorry. Very interesting. So, yeah, brown-headed cowbirds are a real thing. Funny story about this, though. When when my older daughter, Julia, was very young and I was first – you know, getting into birding with her. And I would ask her, like, what a, what a bird was at the feeder. Now, a lot of birds have names that are descriptive, like the brown-headed cowbird or the red-winged blackbird, right? So when she got to a bird she didn't know, she just followed the rule. And she was like, that's a two-winged brown bird. You know, she was just sort of <laughs> describing oh, it. It was so cute. Oh, my God, that's adorable. That's <laughs> what I would have done. Yeah, right? It's perfectly reasonable. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so yes, so brown-headed cowbirds are what are called brood parasites. They lay their eggs in other in the nests of other birds. They don't make nests of their own. In fact, Lazy. they they are They're known the ultimate squatters. Yeah, <laughs> they are they are they are known to uh, be be brood paras- to be brood parasites on up to 220 other species of birds from raptors to hummingbirds, but wow. mainly passerines, which are like small songbirds. Hummingbirds? They will, they will, they will often remove an egg or two from a nest. Oh, that's low. Uh, of Jerks. a nesting and then replace them with their eggs. And, uh, cowbird eggs hatch quicker and their young grow faster so that they get a leg up on stealing the food from the other chicks. Clever. Now, cowbirds do hang out with cows, with, you know, buffalo and herds. They eat the insects that get kicked up by their hooves. One hypothesis is that they evolved uh, brood parasitism because they have to be on the move to follow the herds. Or maybe because they were already following the herds that allowed them to be brood parasites. Or whatever, because they were already brood parasites that allowed them to follow the herd. So whatever, went one way or the other, but... 
the two things do seem to, to work together, the two lifestyles. They are very beautiful birds. I do get them at my feeder. They're very, and they make a very interesting sound. The sound of the brown-headed cowbird almost sounds like an electronic device when you hear it. Very interesting. But so the new study found that, in fact, the uh, the mothers don't just uh, lay it and forget it. They track, they they come back, and they actually keep, after they hatch, they keep track of their children in order to see, in order to see which birds would be good to use in the future. Right? So. Yeah, that's smart. Yeah, it's like, oh, that, like, oh that was a good nest. Yeah, that was that a good one. nest. This mother's going to take care of my kids. I'm going to lay my next eggs in her nest. This other this other bird didn't take good care of them. The, the birds didn't do well. And some birds will identify the brown-headed cowbird egg and throw it out. Uh-huh. Uh, not, most yes. don't. Most have no idea. Most will raise wow. the brown-headed cowbird and have no idea, but a few Silly will recognize birds. it. So this, <laughs> which means that researchers have developed a capsule that automatically degrades medication after a specific length of time to prevent water contamination from discarded medication is the fiction, but this is yeah. a real problem. Yes. A lot of medication finds its way into our into our water system yeah, because do that. because it gets thrown out or flushed or whatever just to, it finds a way to just finds its way into the water supply. They try to filter this stuff out, you know, when they at water treatment plants, but some of it gets through. And if you test water for drugs, you'll find them. You know, small amounts, but they're there. And the concern is that in the aggregate, you know, this could become a problem. So it would be certainly be nice. So of course you shouldn't throw out or flush away your medication. You should if you have expired or medication or medication you're not going to use, you should bring it, it to the pharmacy. <laughs> you should sell it on the street. <laughs> that you should you kids. should bring it to the pharmacy and they will properly dispose of it. But By it certainly it. it would be nice if we could you're not allowed to repackage medication. No, I just, understand. Because you threw it out there, I just, just we don't get an email. You're not allowed to, to, to do that. It's okay. Once it, once it's the, the chain of custody has been broken, right? Basically, once that right. happens, you can't use it. Um, anyway, it certainly would be nice if we could find a way to have the medication uh, degrade so that when it, it's expired, even if it does end up in a landfill somewhere or get flushed or whatever, the pharmaceutical is no longer active. It's it's inert. So there was a study where they were looking at a way to address this, but it wasn't a capsule. What they did was they figured out how to make a slightly different version of a beta blocker called propranolol. And this version was unstable and over time would break down. Now, all drugs do break down over time. That's why drugs expire. They really do expire. Mm-hmm. I forget where they draw uh, the line, yeah. but like, yeah, when the drug's like less than eighty percent or so effective, that's like usually where the expiration date is. And if it's after that, it really falls off the cliff. It might be sixty percent, you know, if you're using it a few months after its expiration date. So double your dose if it's past expiration. <laughs> you just can't <laughs> Evan trust with it. A great advice, <laughs> <laughs> Evan. You're just, just forcing me to correct everything you're yeah, saying. By the way, Evan is not a medical doctor. <laughs> yeah. No, God, no, but I play one on this podcast. <laughs> But you annoy one on this podcast. I stayed, uh, I stayed at a Holiday Inn last night. So, yeah, so propranolol, it's a beta blocker. It's a blood pressure medication. They made a different version of it that still is effective. It has the same pharmaceutical effect, but it breaks down into a non-toxic, inert substance over time. So they're saying maybe we could 
to do re-engineer the most common drugs that are out there so that they do the same thing so that if they do, by the time they do find their way into the water system, they'll be inert. They yeah, won't be that's a good idea. It's a good idea. You know, but of course you have to go through the whole process yeah, of testing who's gonna to make sure. Yeah, who's going to want to do that? Who's going to want to pay for that's, that? Yeah. All right. Well, good job, Bob and Kara. Kara, yes. high five. High five, Kara. Yeah, Bob. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Evan, give us a quote this week. Here we go. The skeptic does not mean him who doubts, but him who investigates or researches, as opposed to him who asserts and thinks that he has found. Not sure about the him versus he, or <laughs> well, it's because why of the, the masculine, but yeah, be- because when I tell you, it's uh, Miguel de Unamuno, who was a Spanish essayist, novelist, poet, playwright, philosopher, and Greek professor. He lived uh, was born in 1864, died in 1936. So it was a you know, masculine sort of centered universe yeah. back then. So. I think it's a bit of a false dichotomy there, or a false choice. You can doubt and investigate. Those are not mutually exclusive. Maybe what he meant was, the skeptic does not mean him who only doubts. Who only doubts. <laughs> only doubts. That's how I took it to mean. That's not, that's not what he actually wrote, that's not, but you, you could be generous and interpret it that but way. But I will be, because it was perhaps lost in translation, yeah. you know, the whole Spanish perhaps. to English thing. Solamente. Perhaps. Yeah, because Spanish is such a hard <laughs> language to translate into English. Si, <laughs> Okay. One quick announcement this week. I will be giving a talk for the humanists and freethinkers of Fairfield County. This will be on Monday, September 14th at 6.30 p.m. at the Silver Star Diner. You can go to meetup.com slash HFFCCT to uh, confirm all the details. I'll be talking about denialism with a specific focus on the anti-GMO movement. All right. Well, thank you all for joining me this week. Thank you, Steve. I'll be better next week, I promise. Congratulations to Jay. Yay. Congratulations to Jay and Courtney. Courtney. I know you guys are excited out there to hear that there is another novella in the world, in the universe. Olivia. Olivia Michael novella. Olivia, I love you already, and I haven't even seen you. Yes. Can't wait to meet you. (laughs) All right. Well, until next week. This is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.